Today, we're going to be focusing on the book of Jude. The book of Jude is right in front of the book of Revelation, if you need to find that. It's a compact 25 verses. It has often been called the most neglected book in the New Testament, probably because it is, if I may say, a little strange. And it is, as I mentioned, compact. If it was full of hyperlinks for you to click on to go to other places to get the fuller meaning of what was happening, nearly the entire letter would be in hyperlinks, if you will. And so for today, I am hopeful to, in some measure of expediency, walk through as much of an overview of what is happening in this book and why it's important to today. Because though it is often a neglected letter of the New Testament, I believe that the message of the book of Jude is incredibly relevant today. And so with that, let me read the 25 verses of the letter of Jude. It says this, Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, to those who are called, beloved in God the Father and kept for Jesus Christ, may mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once and for all delivered to the saints. For certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for this condemnation ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. Now, I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, that Jesus, who saved a people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe. And the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority but left their proper dwelling. He is kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire or flesh, served as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. Yet, in like manner, These people also, relying on their dreams, defile the flesh, reject authority, and blaspheme the glorious ones. Now, when the archangel archangel Michael, contending with the devil, was disputing about the body of Moses, he did not presume to pronounce a blasphemous judgment, but rather said, the Lord rebuke you. But these people blaspheme all that they do not understand, and they are destroyed by all that they, like unreasoning animals, understand instinctively. Woe to them, for they walked in the way of Cain and abandoned themselves for the sake of gain to Balaam's error and perished in Korah's rebellion. These are hidden reefs at your love feast. As they feast with you without fear or shame, shepherds feeding themselves, waterless clouds swept along by wind, fruitless trees in late autumn, twice dead, 
uprooted, wild waves of the sea casting up the foam of their own shame, wandering stars for whom the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved forever. It was also about these that Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment on all and to convict all the ungodly of all their deeds of ungodliness that they have committed in such an ungodly way, and of all the harsh things that ungodly sinners have spoken against him. These are grumblers, malcontents, following their own sinful desires. They are loud-mouthed boasters, showing favoritism to gain advantage. But you must remember, beloved, the predictions of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. They said to you, in the last time there will be scoffers following their own ungodly passions. It is these who cause divisions, worldly people, devoid of the Spirit, but you, beloved, building yourselves up in your most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. And have mercy on those who doubt. Save others by snatching them out of the fire. To others, show mercy with fear, hating even the garment stained by the flesh. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. Now, if you were able to follow or if you were reading along, you can understand this is a dense letter. A lot happening. And to be fair, if this is one of the first times or if it's been a long time since you read this letter, it could often be quite confusing and maybe naturally raise some thoughts in your mind of, I don't remember that part of the Bible that he's referencing. And we'll get to some of that in a moment. See, the book of Jude, at its heart, uh, and this is here in your outline, the main purpose Jude is writing to warn the faithful about false teachers and to encourage them to continue in their faith. A couple of things just as background before we dive in here. This is amazing to me. Um, to me, there is an apologetic or a defense of Jesus Christ and his resurrection and the fact that he is Lord in the fact that the book of Jude is written by a half-brother of Jesus. Now, what is interesting is that all scholars um, that agree that Jude wrote this agree that he is the half-brother of Jesus because he makes a claim to be the brother of James. The only James that would be referenced in this way would be the James who is over the Jerusalem church who is unquestionably the half-brother of Jesus. I'm saying half-brother because Jesus had an earthly mother and then immaculately conceived by the Holy Spirit, no earthly father. But after Jesus was born, Joseph and Mary had children. The Gospels actually speak to this fact that they had children. You may remember there was a time when Jesus was teaching and someone came to say, hey, your brother 
your brothers, your sisters, and your mother are outside. And he turned to the crowd and said, well, who are my brothers and sisters? But those who do the will of my father. See, his earthly brothers and sisters at that time thought he was crazy, thought he was bringing shame on the family because he was out here. We're carpenters. What are you doing out here teaching, going from town to town? And yet Jude, the half-brother of Jesus, begins his letter by saying, Jude, a servant. Actually, the word is more slave. Jude, a slave of Jesus Christ our Lord. Now remember, Jude's last name is not Christ. He is saying Jesus the Messiah. Now anyone in here who has siblings, what would it take for you to say that you are their servant or slave and to call them the Messiah? I don't know about you, but I'd probably have to see him go from death to life. And so Jude begins from the very start, man, he doesn't even claim the fact that he's the brother of Jesus. He says, I'm a slave to him. I serve him. He is my master. That is amazing in and of itself, and it is to the called. This letter is to believers, those who are preserved and kept for Jesus Christ. Now, I actually relate very much to Jude in this moment because he says, I began writing a letter, and what I wanted to write was a letter of our common salvation. And can I just say, those are the type of sermons I like to get up and preach, which is about an encouragement in our common salvation. But Jude says, but I felt compelled to do something different with this letter. And what he's saying is, I wanted to bring a big encouragement, but I felt compelled to encourage you to contend for the faith. Contend is like a military or athletic term that Jude is using, meaning to struggle, to strain, to strive for. He is saying, I need you to strain and struggle for the faith that was handed down once and for all. It is very important that we understand that the faith that was handed down once and for all is still the faith that we are to live today. No amendments, no changes, no additions. It is the faith handed down once and for all. And then in the doxology at the very end, he says, for Jesus is the one with authority from before our time, now, and forever. What was handed down once and for all, the gospel of Jesus Christ and how it transforms us. And so as we walk through this letter, I'm going to break it down into a couple of ways. Number one is this. Let's talk about the truth about the false teachers in this passage. Again, I'm going to have to just sort of briefly touch over a couple of things that I wish I could deep dive into. I did uh, find uh, Anna Watts, who was part of the, the group playing, uh, she was playing the violin in the group just a moment ago. She works in our office. Uh, behind her desk, she has all the catalogs of sermons since we've been able to press them onto CDs and DVDs. Pastor John, in like 2010, preached six weeks on the book of Jude. So if this piques your interest, contact the church office. We'll get you a copy so you can deep dive into it. But for today, the truth about false teachers. Number one, 
Their judgment is certain. See, Jude is saying we contend for the faith because those who go into error, their judgment is certain. He says, let me just share something with you in verse 5 that you already were given. He says, do you not remember that Jesus saved a people out of Egypt? Now that alone is interesting, is it not? Because we think of Jesus as New Testament. He's clearly referencing the exodus um, from the people of Israel, you know, Pharaoh, Pharaoh, let my people go. But he's saying Jesus is the one. Jesus made a way of salvation and got them right to the door of the promised land. But those spies went in and came back, and 10 out of the 12 said, we cannot do it as if God had not parted the sea just weeks before. And Jude says, be reminded that even though a way of salvation was made, when they got to the point of needing belief, they rejected and they were destroyed. That entire generation, 40 years in the wilderness, were wiped out until a new generation came to the doorstep to enter into Canaan. False teachers, their judgment is certain. Then he gives a very bizarre reference, if I may be honest. He says, he, he likes to give uh, examples in threes or it's triads. So the children of Israel. Then second, he says, don't forget that also judgment was given on angels who left their proper abode and dwelling, and they have been chained in darkness until their next step, which is the lake of fire. They are already chained up. What is he referencing? It is, to be honest, a very bizarre and very, like, four verses in Genesis chapter 6 is most likely what is being referenced here, where angels came and took on human form and began to have children with the son, I mean, with the daughters of men. Genesis 6, verses 1 through 4. Again, I could dive into that. We don't have a lot of time. But there was such iniquity that came out of that union that the flood came to destroy them. He says, God did not hesitate to punish fallen angels or angels who stepped out of their proper lane, if you will. But again, it's a triad, so there's a third one. He says, and don't forget about Sodom and Gomorrah. Don't forget about how they went after strange flesh and their sexual immorality caused God to rain fire and brimstone down from the sky to destroy them. Essentially, Jude is saying false teachers fall into a long line of those who will receive a certain judgment. See, these false teachers of their day, just from this right here, we can already tell they are those that reject authority, they do not stay in their proper lane, and they are living a sexually immoral lifestyle and justifying it. And a few verses later, it says, by their dreams they justify. So they're claiming a special revelation of God to justify what they are 
doing. This is important because when Jude says we have a faith that was handed down once and for all, it means there are no leaders who stand up with a special revelation contrary to what was handed down once and for all. That is a hallmark of false teaching and their judgment is certain. Number two about these false teachers, their character is ungodly. Their character is ungodly. You can see there in verses 8 through 11, you could also earmark verses 14 to 16. I'm going to just focus on 8 to 11 for simplicity this morning. Another triad. He, said, he lists three notorious sinners from the Old Testament that they are like, that their character is like. First, he lists Cain. Again, tons of hyperlinks, right? He says, they have followed the way of Cain. Cain was the first son of Adam and Eve. And he came and brought an offering to the Lord. His brother Abel brought an offering, and it was pleasing to the Lord. Cain's was not pleasing to the Lord. Hebrews gives uh, a little bit more background to what's happening there by saying it was not done in faith. And so Cain becomes the archetype of one who practices religion with no heart and no faith in it. Then secondly, he says, they have also gone the way of Balaam. Another obscure story from the book of Numbers where Balaam is a um, a pagan prophet hired by the Moab king to go and pronounce a curse on Israel, and he's going to be paid to do it. And you may remember as he's on his way to do that, that the angel of the Lord used a donkey to speak to Balaam. But Balaam's sin is clear. He was a prophet for hire. He was greedy. Whoever pays the most is one who gets the prophecy. These false teachers were those that were greedy Later in the book of Jude, it would say that they, were, they showed favoritism to certain people for their own advantage. And we all understand what that looks like. And then the third of the triad is that they fall into the rebellion of Korah. In the book of Numbers, you also see Korah, who was a cousin of Moses. He gets a little angry because Moses did not choose him to be a high priest. And so he does what a lot of church people do. He goes and finds people who will listen to him, and then they stand up in front of all of God's people and say, Moses, who are you to stand up and lead us? Rebelling God's clear authority God had a unique way of dealing with that in the book of Numbers and that the ground literally just opened up, swallowed them, business meeting moves on. Do I have a second? <laughs> they fall into the error of rebellion. See, these false teachers are those who are practicing religion with no faith. They are after it for profit, and they are those who rebel against proper 
authority. Now, I, I skipped over this little moment in the first part of verse 8 again. I don't have a lot of time, but some of you, as we were reading it earlier, it talks about Michael, the archangel, um, having a discussion or a dispute with the devil, with Satan himself over the body of Moses. Some of you started looking through your concordance going, I don't remember reading that. And that's because it is not recorded in our Bible. It is likely from a pseudographical or a non-canon book called The Assumption of Moses that was developed over years and years. And this is why Jude is complex and strange. And most people just go, you know what, let's just not deal with it. We'll neglect it. And we don't know whether Jude is counting that as truth or whether he is using a common Jewish thought as an example or as an illustration, or whether that particular thing, because this part is inspired by Scripture, is evidence that that event took place. It's very bizarre, but the point that we need to make today at least is that these false teachers had an ungodly character. It also moves forward uh, to... Later in the book, I'll just go ahead and mention this, where Jude references a prophecy of Enoch. Of Enoch. Um, and some of you are going, I just, I know I don't know all my minor prophets, but Enoch. Well, he was in the genealogy of Genesis, and there's a very interesting phrase that takes place with Enoch. Every other person in that genealogy, it says, they were born. They begat so-and-so, and they died at such-and-such such years of age. When it comes to Enoch, you can go look this up later, it says he was with God, and then he left. And there's no he died. It's, it's, just, it's sort of like Elijah getting carried up. He, he didn't die. He was just taken up with, the God, with God because of his righteousness. And so over time, another pseudographical book, the book of First. Enoch rises up and is very common in the day of Jude, and he references a prophecy that the ungodly, for their ungodly wickedness and their ungodly ways and the way that they handled themselves un, in an ungodly manner, God would judge. Now, that doesn't mean that first Enoch is canon and we're missing anything. It just means that Jude's saying, now that part is true. So they have a certain judgment. They have an ungodly character. Number three, their promises are empty. These false teachers, their promises are empty. He describes them in a multitude of ways. I mean, metaphors just flying at you in the next couple of verses, starting in verse 12. He says, they are like a hidden reef at your love feast. Now, that, the, the idea of a love feast um, don't think of like something that is uh, a weird sexual gathering of the church. It's essentially where they would come together with fellowship for one another and often take the Lord's Supper. What you focus on is the front part. These false teachers are like hidden reefs. When you are trying to come into a harbor, a hidden reef can sink your boat. That's what these false teachers are like. They are hidden danger as you're coming into port, as you're coming into this holy meeting of the faithful to take the Lord's Supper, these false teachers are like rocks and reefs that your boat can be destroyed on. They're empty. 
Secondly, they're described as waterless clouds. In a, in a region like where Jude is writing, rain means everything. And so when you see a big, plump, gray cloud coming over, all the hope of rain is in you. But when it passes by and no rain comes out, there is disappointment. There was hope and promise, but no follow-through. These false teachers make a lot make a lot of big, plump, juicy promises, and they sign God's name to it, but it's something that he never said he would do, and they just go right over, and there is no water to your soul. They are waterless clouds. They are like unfruitful trees in late autumn. What he's describing is that by the end of late autumn, all the trees, even the late-bearing fruit trees, should have borne Fruit, And yet we're at the end of the season with these false teachers, and there is no fruit, no spiritual fruit to be born. And so they are doubly dead. They didn't bear fruit, and they need to be uprooted and tossed out. And then one more. They are like wandering stars or wandering planets. And what this would indicate is this. Many of us know um, the idea of following the North Star. It is a fixed star. You can sort of get your bearing wherever you are with that star. But what he's saying is these wandering stars or these wandering planets that seem to move through, you can't fix yourself and navigate off of them because they are not in the same place from one month to the next. You cannot fix your navigation to their teaching. They bring promises that ring empty. And Jude is saying, beloved, don't fall prey to these false teachers. They make big promises that are empty. Then fourth, not only is their judgment certain, their character ungodly, their promises empty, their presence is unsurprising. Their presence is unsurprising. Jude in verse 17 says, But you must remember, beloved, the apostles predicted this. They told you that in the last days scoffers would come and that they would be chained, if you will, to their ungodly desires. You can see this in the writings of Jesus or in the teachings of Jesus, excuse me, where he says there will be wolves in sheep's clothing. And so the apostles heard that, and they taught the people, look, others will come. Truth was handed down. Our faith once and for all. Be wary of anyone who wants to make amendment or addition or subtraction to what was given once and for all. Ladies and gentlemen, I told you at the beginning that this may be a neglected book, but it is very relevant to today. Listen, I, there are so many false teachers and false worldviews that are seeking to creep in unnoticed into our churches. I'm reminded of a time when, when I was in college. Um, please just know this was 20 years ago and not like last week. 
But I remember we were at, me and my roommates were at a friend's apartment. And I don't know why, but my, I sort of was stretching and my hand went into the blinds at their apartment and it felt a little latch to their window and I just unlocked it. And then just sort of moved on. And then when we left that evening, I told my roommates, I said, hey, I unlocked their window. What if we go in tomorrow and like rearrange all their furniture while they're in class? And so we crept in unnoticed and we swapped their bedrooms. All the posters from one into the other and one to the other, the sheets off of one bed onto the other, like lamps. I mean, just, and then we just crept right out, having sowed chaos for them to come home and try to figure out what happened. Well, unfortunately, we had enough of a reputation. It only took about two hours after they got home to ring us up because they knew. <laughs> but look, there are teachers and worldviews that are trying to creep into our home and rearrange the furniture to create chaos. And just like these teachers, there are many who are seeking to do it for personal gain, for financial gain. Please hear me out of, out of, my, out of the love for my heart. Don't send your money into someone on TV who's prayed over a handkerchief because you think it's going to bless you. They are riding your gift all the way to the bank, and there is an empty, waterless cloud coming back in the mail. There are worldviews and even some creeping into the church that are seeking to promote an ungodly lifestyle in terms of sexuality and claiming it, look, they're taking what was handed down once and for all and they're trying to make amendment, they're trying to say culture overrides what God said, but it was handed down once and for all. There are those that want to tell us you can choose your own truth. That is a reef at the harbor that can sink you without you even knowing it's there. There are those who want to come in in a fancy word called deconstructionism, where they want to take our Scripture and try to deconstruct it to find the true meaning or a relevant meaning. What they are doing is saying the things we don't like we can take off as a later addition until we find just those things that we like. But what happens in 50 years when somebody doesn't like that anymore? See, we were handed truth and the false teachers have a certain judgment. You look at their character and it is ungodly. Their promises are empty. But don't be surprised that they're here because God told us from the beginning that in every generation, scoffers will come. And so Jude said, I wanted to preach an encouraging sermon today, but I had to ask you to contend, struggle, strive for the faith that was handed down once and for all. So what do we do? At the very end of this, Jude gives us a couple of quick pointers. Number one, how the faithful respond in this sort of climate. Number one, actively build a holy faith. 
actively build a holy faith. Holy faith. Holy faith. Not just faith. Holy faith. Build a holy faith. We are well beyond the days in our culture where you can just show up at church on Sunday and that's the only truth you hear and be able to not be persuaded by false teachers. We come here not for me to be the sole architect of helping you build your faith. We come here to celebrate truth together and worship him together, but we all are a holy priesthood. Each of us have the ability to read the word and build a holy faith. Meaning, know what is true so when error comes, you can reject it as unholy. Secondly, we are to pray fervently in the Holy Spirit. He says, build up a holy faith and pray in the Holy Spirit. Don't allow yourself to be persuaded and drawn like shifting tides. Pray in the Holy Spirit that you will be anchored to truth. If you are reading something or watching something or hearing something from someone that sounds off, pray in the Holy Spirit for discernment that you may know truth and reject false teaching. Contend for the faith handed down once and for all. And then lastly, he says this, Minister to others with mercy and caution. Now this is as important as the front part of the message. He says, what do we do with those who are doubting or who are committed to these false teachings that are, have crept in unnoticed? He says, have mercy on the doubters. Meaning, be patient with them but in mercy and gentleness speak truth to them. Help them try to understand truth. There may be some in this room who you are in a season of doubting, and I don't know what's true about all the myriad of topics that are out there right now. And you go, I just don't know. Well, let us who are certain in our faith be merciful and kind and gently guide them to truth. Secondly, he says, but there are others that you will need to save as if snatching them out of the fire. There's sort of an allusion here to Zechariah chapter 3. It's not very overt, but it's there in the next two pieces. See, Joshua is one of the high priests, and he comes before, and there's an angel of the Lord, and Satan is there, and he is filthy. His garments are filthy. And he is described as being snatched out of the fire like a brand out of fire. And then he is given new, clean clothes so that he may serve the Lord as a priest on behalf of Israel. There are some who believe these false teachings and by truth we teach them and they may be snatched out of the certain fire 
of punishment and judgment that will come upon them. And so we have to be bold in sharing truth even to those who are our opponents in the sense of belief and theology and maybe even worldview. See, Jesus said, love your enemies. And Jude, his brother, is saying, and when you love your enemies, share with them truth and you might snatch them out of the fire. And then lastly, he says this, To others, this is at the end of verse 23, to others show mercy with fear, hating even the garment stained by flesh. We are to be merciful to those who doubt or believe differently, but we are to do it with a healthy fear. This may be the closest that a verse comes to what we modern day often say is love the sinner, hate the sin. Here, here is where we're at as a culture, and I, I'm winding it down. I want to go ahead and invite um, Stacy and his team to come up for the, the closing response song. Here, here is where we're at, where we have sort of these extreme polar opposites of how we, how we view and how we try to deal with false teachers in our day. On one hand, we come in with total, what we perceive to be love and mercy with no truth, and we just embrace everything that they are and who they are and bring them in. Remember, Second John said, withhold hospitality from those who are deceivers so that you do not partner with them. We have to be careful not to wholeheartedly just go, I'm going all love. Well, look, love, according to Third John last week, often requires tough love, having to rebuke diatrophies. But on the other side, we come in with all judgment and no love. And there's no opportunity to snatch them out of the fire because they feel like they are hated, not just their belief or their lifestyle. And so Jude comes and says, be merciful but with caution. Merciful because they are a human being created in God's image and maybe God might snatch them out of this coming judgment. But also fearful in that we will not be stained by the very garments of pollution of the false teachers. There is a balance, and we have to navigate. And guess what? I wish it was even more specific than that because as we deal with these things, we're going to make mistakes as we err a little bit too far and have to course correct. But at the end of the day, it comes down to this doxology. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling. Build up a holy faith, but remember it's God who keeps you from stumbling. And he will be the one to present us blameless in his presence of his glory to great joy to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time, now and forever. Amen. If you are able, would you just stand? I want us to read together this doxology, and then we're going to have a final song. It's such a beautiful doxology, and it reminds us of who is the one that has the power to keep us. So together, will you read with me? Now. 
to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen.